2: Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative so and entertaining and show will start your mornings off the on the right foot. Here's your host, street. Catherine Zox, good your night. social worker with the microphone. So the ghosts out in the hall, the paint peeling off the walls, good night. Sometimes I stand between the sidewalk and the sky. And just staring through the clouds as they pass by, you have to leave the
0: ground to learn to fly. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Sean Worthington, author of Beyond Bitcoin, The Future of Digital Currency. Described as an easy, instant, and anonymous worldwide payment system, Bitcoin has been steadily growing in popularity since its introduction to the public in early 2009. But according to one cryptocurrency expert, despite Bitcoin's enthusiastic acceptance and the dizzying profits it's been producing for owners and investors, the long-term outlook for Bitcoin, Bitcoin is not bright. Uh, joining us this morning is Sean Worthington, uh, an expert in uh, in this global currency and author of Beyond Bitcoin. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Sean. Well,
3: thank you very much for having me.
0: So, Bitcoin. I have to say, you know, it keeps coming up in conversation. You know, in in uh, actually, just last week, somebody told me that they made a lot of money on Bitcoin, Bitcoin and I'm never really sure. Well, I can't explain it. I'm not re- I don't really understand it. Maybe because I'm a s- social worker. Maybe it's with the people that I hang around with. I don't know. But so can you tell us let's, what exactly is Bitcoin before we get into um, CloudCoin?
3: Sure. Well, Bitcoin is the first digital currency that solves what's called the physical integrity problem of digital money and the problem with anything digital or with digital money specifically is that you could copy and paste it all over your computer you could delete it and so how would you ever stop anybody from counterfeiting it? and basically the blockchain has figured out how to do that or the bitcoin has figured out how to do that by creating a data structure they call it the blockchain and you can write to it and you can read from it but you can't delete any records and you can't update the records so it's a basically a big transaction log that shows all the money and how it's gone and how it's changed hands and it tracks every occurrence that happens. And so they stop counterfeiting in that way.
0: And I might add, because I didn't say this in the, you know, I introduced you as an author, but you are an expert, tenured faculty member in the computer science department of Butte College in Northern California and an expert in computer information systems. So uh, so, so who's using Bitcoin? I mean, how is it being used now?
3: since you said it's been in, yeah. Sure. Well, it started being used by libertarians who were concerned about the Federal Reserve money. They wanted to have something better. They were you know, often using gold and silver, and Bitcoin gave them the opportunity to get away from the Federal Reserve money, which they're concerned about inflation and manipulations going on. And they were, uh, then it started being used to be able to purchase things all over the planet. And so if you wanted to buy a million dollars worth of oil from Venezuela, Bitcoin might be your only choice because the Venezuelan government might try to block your dollars or do something in between. And uh, it grew in popularity But um, what happened is that people who did buy it started realizing that they were making money at the end of the month, and so it became an investment. And so now you're seeing a lot of people investing money into it, and this has gotten pretty crazy now. We see that the price is exploding. It's probably a bubble, but uh, now the majority of people that are buying Bitcoins are, in fact, investors.
0: So what if I wanted to invest? What would I do? Just I'm sitting in front of my computer. Uh, You know, uh, Take me through that.
3: So it's not really an easy thing to do. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to get on the public ledger or the blockchain. And that takes about three days. And you've got to download a wallet, and the wallet is about 150 gigabytes if you want to do it securely. So you've got to download that, and that might take three or four days. And then you've got to find somebody that will sell it to you. And that could be you know, a matter of just looking at your local Craigslist or... Or uh, uh, finding somebody as you know that's got bitcoins that want to sell them, or it could mean going to an exchange, in which you have to go through a big process of uh, signing up and submitting documents and IDs, and that actually can take four days in itself, or maybe even a week. So it takes a long
0: time. All right. So it's an arduous process, is what you're saying, right? You can't do it right away. And that's right. So yeah, and you talk about in your book. I mean, there are major flaws to Bitcoin. What else What are the other flaws? It takes a lot of time. Um, and it's, and I, as I understand it, hackers can get into your computer and find out exactly what the transi- transactions that you've done um, and know exactly what your financial situation is like. Is that it?
3: Well, there is a possibility. Uh, there's you know, a lot of problems. The first problem that becomes apparent when people use it is that it's not scalable. And that means that the more people that use it, the slower it gets. And so you might buy some Bitcoins, but then when you go to sell them, you might find that you can't or it's taking too long or maybe the exchange slows down to such an extent that you're told to come back later because there's only so many transactions that the blockchain can handle every second. And if you go over that, then it could take days to do a transaction. So there's the whole the speed of it, but uh, like you said... You have an account number on the blockchain and it tracks every transaction you make. And this blockchain goes bigger and bigger and bigger as more transactions are made. And so what can happen is that if somebody was to come into your house and grab your computer, they might be able to find out what your public and private keys are, which would give away your account number and they could actually track everything that you've ever done. So it would would not be private. It would be the exact opposite of private. To be used to prove that you made purchases. And that's just the start of things.
0: All right, so, g- tell us some of the other flaws that are involved in, in Bit- that have to do with Bitcoin. Because you think Bitcoin is not going to be used as a digital monetary system, I- I'm assuming.
3: That's right. I mean, uh, one of the biggest problems is that it's not quantum safe. And now we're inventing quantum computers, which can, in theory, hack the blockchain in about two minutes. And I think it's pretty safe to say that our government probably already has warehouses full of quantum computers that are able to decrypt these, uh, these uh, IDs and, and, and get bitcoins But certainly in the future, the public will be able to do it. I think that within 10 years, I can safely say that the blockchain will be totally hackable. That's another problem. Another problem is that that it's based on consensus. And so if the Chinese were to put up 6,000 servers, they could, in theory, just take over the blockchain and uh, claim that they have all the money.
0: So so what's the difference between that and, let's say, you know, I have... uh, my money in my bank account online and, or in different banks mm-hmm. and can't somebody hack that as well? You know what I mean? Isn't that possible as well? Isn't it sort of the same thing?
3: Yeah, that's a big that's a big problem. The difference is something called referential integrity. And that is when you go online to your bank or you've got your debit card, you've got numbers that point to what is supposed to be physical green paper money. And it references that and so it's possible that somebody could come in and uh, steal your identity and they could uh, get the, your username and password and they could steal the references. And there's also some problems that maybe the bank doesn't actually have the money that's, that they're supposed to have. Like if if uh, you're supposed to have $1,000, what happens if they don't actually have $1,000 in the bank? So that's a big issue. But with Bitcoin, there's no referential integrity problems because it's... Uh, you pretty much own what you have there's no banks involved,
0: so you mentioned quantum computers what can mm-hmm. for, can you explain that later and what is a c- what is a quantum computer
3: well uh quantum computing is kind of like magic it's unbelievable. There's something called a qubit, and these qubits have different states and you know, basically, they're able to uh, check thousands of different encryption codes all at, the one, all at the same time. And so where a regular computer has to do them one at a time, they could do thousands at one time. And so they can uh, decrypt things much faster.
0: And you mentioned the United States, we have getting their, like our government is, has more and more of those. And is that true around the world
3: well, we don't know because that's all national secrets. As far as we know, our country doesn't, you know, our nation doesn't even have one of them. But we do know that IBM is manufacturing them and you can buy them for $10 million. And we know that they are being manufactured in Canada. So if the, uh, these private companies can uh, make them and sell them, certainly the governments, the strongest governments who are very interested in cracking codes would have them just for that purpose.
0: Right, so, we we have some idea, I guess, of what Bitcoin is and what it can do and what it can't do. But now you're saying you have created a, a what digital currency called CloudCoin that gets rid of these design flaws that we've been ta- that you talk about that are related to Bitcoin. So, um, tell us about CloudCoin and how it differs from Bitcoin. And yeah, you know,
3: sure. sure. And so CloudCoin is a what's called a second-mover technology. We were able to take a look at all of the problems that Bitcoin has, basically solve them, and we created a totally different data structure to handle the, the uh, physical integrity of the digital currency. And basically, instead of tracking every transaction that ever happens, CloudCoin just checks to see if it's if the coins are authentic or not. And so it's a counterfeit detection system, a global counterfeit detection system. And so this allows us to have a money that transacts just in seconds. And it's 100% anonymous. There's no accounts required. You don't have to open up an account to get involved with it. So it's very easy to get started. In fact, uh, if you go to a a marketing site called digitalfrontiernews.com and sign up for their newsletter, they'll give you five pre-cloud coins that you can try out and you just receive them in your email. And so it's uh, much faster, much more private. And if there was an Olympics among digital currencies, CloudCoin would just win everything, every contest.
0: So you, I, I'm attributing this quote to you, but it's, you've called it the world's most perfect currency? That's right. Is this something? <laughs> yeah.
3: Go ahead. So I was working on my dissertation in computer information systems. And I was actually working on uh, being able to identify dollar bills and being able to tell different denominations by object recognition. And uh, I realized that monetary systems are just information systems. They're accounting systems. And what they do is they track all the value that we create so that we can then get that value out. And so it's supposed to create a system in which when we add a lot of value to the economy, we get a lot of value out of the economy. And the money is actually data, and so I just opened up my PhD database book and looked at what is the, you know, ideal data, what is perfect data, and I just applied that to money. I realized that money is data, and we can just add all these rules to it, and that's where we created CloudCoin.
0: All right. Well, now that you said we created it. That's you and who else? You, you're working on your dissertation. You and who else are, are involved in this?
3: I'm the one that invented it and patented it, but in order to implement it, we've had to have uh, lots of people from around the world. So we've brought in system administration, I'm sorry, system administrators, because the monetary system is an information system and it requires system administrators. And so we've got people in Russia in India and Taiwan, Japan, Colombia, all over the world that have created this network of counterfeit detection systems. Everybody's independent. They all have their own hardware. They have have their own software, and they help to tell whether cloud coins are real or not.
0: So how do you recruit these people? How do you know, I mean, how do you know, I I just uh, like that they're legit. I mean, you're talking about all around the world, obviously, you know, and As you say, in China and Japan and Mm -hmm. India, yeah. So, I mean, do how how does that work?
3: Well, we try to stay out of countries in which the people might get killed for doing what they're doing, like China. But uh, the you know online these days, you can recruit people all over the world from different websites and uh, you can look at, like, Microsoft, and they've got a list of all of their Microsoft-certified systems engineers, and you can contact them from around the world. And you have LinkedIn, which allows you to contact people from all around the world. So it was pretty easy making contacts, and once I explained the concept to them, it was easy to recruit them into the project. And we also gave them philosophical tests to see if they believed in good and bad and whether they were basically libertarian in thinking and that they wouldn't try to uh, go in and change the data and play with things. So
0: that could be, yeah. I mean, that would be a pretty scary thing, wouldn't it, if they started doing that?
3: I mean... Yeah, it would. It would pretty much defeat the whole system. And so we have to make sure that we have uh, people that, understand that money is data and that want to make this make it work and of course every other digital currency has the same problem except uh, ours is a little bit different in that we are scalable and that means that we start with a small amount of servers and then we start adding them on as the demand grows and so at least to begin with it's important that we have very good administrators
0: so now that you've reached this point, I mean, what's the next step in terms of cloud coins? What are you going to do with it or what do you hope to do with it?
3: Well, we're still getting out of our infancy and we have to create an exchange and we hopefully will have that done in the next couple of weeks. And then we've got uh, something called what does that cloud entail? Bank.
0: Well, I would just want to step back so we understand this, but like you have to create an exchange. What does that mean? How do you do it?
3: And so people are going to want to take cloud coins and exchange them into their local currencies, whether it be dollars or euros or yen or what have you. And we want to make that easy for people to do. Uh, PayPal is actually a monetary system. It's a private ledger system that makes it easy to do that. We want to do that as well. So we have to create exchanges, and um, we're in the process of doing that. It hasn't been done yet, but it just allows us to exchange cloud coins for any other currency in the world. So that'll add a big, big uh, value to CloudCoin. We also want to create merchant software that allows anybody to put CloudCoins into their software because CloudCoin is the first day of money that can be imported, actually imported into the software. And so we're making some um, trial uh, software that shows how that works and uh, code that people can just plug right into their website to make it happen.
0: I mean, is it easy for just your average consumer to use this, or do you really have to be some kind of a techie kind of person, or under, under, or, or not? I mean,
3: so we I developed mean, it so that it's basically JPEG images, and so if I want to give you money, I just email you a picture of money, and if you look at the money, you can see it's got a serial number, and every different JPEG has a different serial number. And you then import this into a piece of software that owns it. Which that means password own. It changes all the passwords so that only you know those passwords. And that's how you basically own it, is by changing the passwords so that only you know them.
0: So, what you're saying, it's a fairly simple procedure for anyone to do, is it?
3: Yeah, you can send them on Facebook or email or Skype It's designed to look and feel like money so that it doesn't seem odd or strange like Bitcoin where you've got to have this so-called wallet, which is just a program with these crazy uh, hexadecimal addresses that you've got to type in. Uh, it's, (laughs) It's nothing like that. You can just put it on a USB drive and I can give you the USB drive and now you've got the money. Or uh, it's even possible for us to store the cloud coins in our minds. We can use an algorithm that allows us to create passwords that we put in the money, and we can store these in our minds and we can transfer them then through whispering or talking to people. And so it makes it really very private and perhaps even unhackable.
0: Well, does this, Sean, is this digital currency? Is this going to, is this? the wave of the future? I mean, in 10 or 20 years, this is the kind of thing that we're going to be using to exchange digital currency as opposed to like, you know, dollar bills where you... Yes, you yeah, so <laughs> it's
3: going to dominate everything. And the reason is because it's such a, a, a better currency. You're going to be better off by having it. If you've got this digital currency, it'll go up in value uh, steadily where other currencies will go down in value. And it's going to be a lot more convenient for you. You're going to be able to buy and sell things on your cell phone. And you're really, I don't think you're going to want any other type of money, even gold and silver. This allows you to buy anything uh, on the other side of the planet completely private. And you don't have to pay any bank fees or tariffs or, or anything like that.
0: And this Will replace. I mean, I'm just you know. This obviously this is your opinion, but I mean, will replace our ban- banking system?
3: Absolutely. We won't need vaults or tellers or ATMs or anything like that. The whole banking system can pretty much go away because we can actually have our banks on our computer. We can have it where our uh, our computer sits and listens and waits for money to arrive in emails and then it takes ownership of that money. and our banks, we can set up Excel spreadsheets where it automatically pays everybody that we want it to pay. And uh, we will not need banks except for if we want to get interest. We might want to take any extra savings that we have that we're not spending. We might want to then send that to an investment bank so that they can make loans on it. We can receive some interest. But besides that, the banks aren't going to be uh, necessary anymore. And uh, of course, the banks are threatened by this.
0: Let's talk about the threat because I was thinking about is is the precursor to all this? Like you know, when you could you wire money, for instance. I mean, that's kind of like a basic, mm-hmm. right? It, and is or you can pay your bills online, or I mean, is that just was kind of the very beginning of doing of of, of doing digital currency, I guess.
3: Well, um, so the, like when you pay bills online, basically they just write checks and those checks go through the mail and the check is a way of being able to send money to somebody without actually sending the money to them. And it makes it much more convenient. And, uh, but digital money will have digital checks just the same way as, uh, as regular money has. And so we're creating a bill pay system in which we have checks as well and that, we send out the checks to people, and they can then go to the to our uh, cloud bank software and cash them. That's so interesting.
0: So, how do you? do uh, I guess what I can't uh, sort of get my hand, grasp is so where's all the? I mean, how do you? Are you? Can you create money? Do you know what I mean? what's the basis of all of this? Like where? Like the gold? Like the gold is, or the, our gold standard is the basis for our monetary system, right? So, what's the Basically, you know what I'm saying. I
3: Absolutely. Know, like, where is it? And so can, this is the big yeah. revelation. This is the big thing that we figured out, and that is that money is data. And so if you want to make excellent, wonderful money, it doesn't need to be made out of gold or silver or paper money that can't be counterfeited. It's got. It's uh, just has to have what's called physical and logical integrity. And part of that is that number one, it cannot be counterfeited. And so what that means is that CloudCoin is the first currency which we minted the money first and that's it. There's no more money. We do have the ability to um, split the money. So if you do have money and we want to increase the, uh, reduce the value so it's a, the unit of account is easier to use, we can multiply everybody's money proportionally, but there's no new money that comes into the system from anywhere. And we also make it so you cannot lose the money. So with uh Bitcoin, for example, there's like 4 million Bitcoins that have been lost, and if they ever lose more than they bring in, that's the end of Bitcoin. And uh, uh, basically the way that the Bitcoin runs itself and funds the network is that they counterfeit new Bitcoins, they make new Bitcoins, but the way that CloudCoin works is that we have our miners and they mine for lost CloudCoins that have been permanently lost, and when they find CloudCoins that have been permanently lost, they can recover them. And that's used to pay for our system, and so we don't have any permanent loss in our system.
0: Well, one last question, because we we don't have that much time left. But is there some? Is it because you can do this so quickly, and you can do it on your iPhone, as you say? You can um, make purchases and and uh, invest. Is that a danger? You know, it's it's people that can make mistakes. And, you know, you sort of get ahead of themselves when it comes to, let's say, just investing. Is, is that an issue or a problem with this kind of currency?
3: Well, there's a lot of things that we don't know yet, but in theory, this is going to make the velocity of money transfer, you know, happen much faster, and that's going to be better for everybody, And so, uh, when we have a, you know, we depend on money to make decisions, and the better money that we have, the better decisions that we can make, and the faster that we can make them. So, I think it's going to be a benefit. I don't think we're going to have any additional problems because of the speed of the way that things can be transferred.
0: Well, if people want more information about this, because we uh, we only have about a minute left, uh, I've got a thing here that says you can request a free copy. Your book, Beyond Bitcoin, The Future of Digital Currency, and get five free cloud coins? Can we do that?
3: That's right. If they go to digitalfrontiernews.com.
0: Say that again uh, because I interrupt.
3: Digitalfrontiernews.com, they just sign up for the newsletter.
0: Okay. Say that one more time. I keep interrupting you.
3: Okay, sorry. I so said at uh, digitalfrontiernews.com, they can sign up for our, for our newsletter. They can receive the digital book for free and five free cloud coins to try them out. And it could be worth a lot in the future, so I think it's worth doing.
0: Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. We've been talking to Sean H. Worthington, author of Beyond Bitcoin, The Future of Digital Currency. Um, have a great day. I'm Catherine Sox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
4: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
2: You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Diane Sherry-Case, author of Write for Recovery, Exercises for Heart, Mind, and Spirit. When Diane Sherry-Case started teaching teenagers in prison, she encouraged her students to use creative writing. Through journaling, she discovered that many of the inmates, all triple felons, were victims of abuse. She unlocked a healthy creativity in them and is now using that power to inspire Others, Diane has a rich and varied career in the arts, beginning as a child actor, best known for her role as Lana Lang, the first superhero's first girlfriend in Superman. And she's also the author of countless short stories and two novels. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Diane. It's good to be with you. All right. So you're a writer, an actor. Uh, you are definitely been involved in the arts for many years, and here you go into prisons, I guess, teaching teenagers. Uh, and finding out that in order, I guess, to help them sort of be able to express themselves, you encourage them to use creative writing. Um, how did that begin? How did you? When did you discover that? And what was the purpose initially when you went into these prisons uh, teaching uh, these teenagers? What was well, your goal initially? Been, I had
1: been uh, writing for a long time. And I was teaching uh, writing at a private school and realized that it was healing for the kids. And so I started uh, designing my exercises to be more geared towards healing and to be – and then I was asked to teach at prisons. And um, uh, in the meantime, I went back to school and got a master's in psychology. And that enabled me to gear a lot of the exercises um, to – Psychological principles. And um, I just discovered in the prisons that the kids hadn't, a lot of them had never really told their stories. And I allowed them to destroy the paper if they wanted to, to write privately. But it was just so good for them to get out their secrets. And a lot of them then wanted to share. And what I discovered in uh, many of the cases is that the kids had been abused in the same way that their crimes their their crimes resembled the abuse they had suffered as children um, some of them were sexual crimes some of them were violence and they mirrored what they had been through as children and so this was the first time the kids were really able to put together the cause and events uh well it's to move interesting i to i, I want to
0: uh, well, you started with, you're saying, with kids in private schools, and then you're kind of doing a 180 to kids in prison, which is interesting, because it would seem to me that's a different demographics in terms of the experiences that these kids have had. But yet It was quite able, a shock. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, as a social worker, I've had more experience with prisoner adult prisoners, not children in prison, but um, these are teenagers, I guess, right? Um,
1: yeah, they were about 15.
0: Yeah. What were your expectations? Because as I'm saying, I just want to, you know, you started out working with these private school kids and then you go to a prison. I had a, Their response to you had to be very different than the response perhaps that you got. when
1: Yes. I didn't kids, expect to no. love them yeah. all as much as I fell for them um, because I thought of them as criminals, but they were really kids that had been abused. Uh, who then became criminals? And uh, I just really fell for a lot of the kids. They wrote really touching stories, and um, I, I guess I, ex- I didn't. Ex- I expected them to be. M- most of them were had trouble with the English language, um, which was a challenge. But they were still able to free flow write and to uh, tell a lot of stories that hadn't hadn't been told. Um, one that I remember really touched me was a, a child writing about, writing about when he was like three years old or, or four years old, and he was his grandmother. His parents had died, so he was supporting his grandmother, who was disabled, and he had to sell newspapers in the street in Mexico, and he was so small he was always scared to get hit by a car as he ran through the newspaper, you know, to sell the newspapers at stoplights. Um, just little details in their lives that were just really touching. I, you know, that's not um, not to go into the abuse, um, which was, you know, dark. Um, yeah.
0: uh, those stories are very dark, and I guess uh, I wonder how you got those kids to trust you so that they could sit and write their really traumatic stories and and uh, trust that you were going to be okay with those stories and with them. Cause, yeah. It yeah. was
1: amazing. I think they were all really kind of dying to get it out, and a lot of them did. I gave them the opportunity, if they wanted to share them out loud or share them with me, and a lot of them did. And I think that's really valuable, too, because you have a witness. It's like confession. Um, and it was a safe place. I, you know, I, was, I was guaranteed that it would be a safe place for them to write and not have consequences for what they wrote.
0: Discuss the process with us. I mean, I'm always interested in like they wrote their, They trusted you. They wrote their story. You were there. You were a witness. It was a safe place. You had already gotten a degree in psychology, uh, besides being a writer. Uh, uh, once they wrote their story, then what happened though? What happens after that? You know what? What? What's the? Um, you know what's the outcome? They write the story. They've sort of spilled their guts to you in writing. Uh, then what?
1: Well, sometimes I got letters after I stopped teaching that they their lives had turned around. Uh, a couple of them. Uh, I didn't keep in touch with many of them, but I did get forwarded a couple of letters, and that was really touching. the The, the process of teaching them, I, I use exercises that are um, that are based on creative writing exercises. So they're not. It's not just telling you to write their, your story, which is sometimes daunting. And I also instruct them that they don't have to use punctuation or complete sentences or even worry about spelling. And that way you can free flow write faster than you can think. So my idea isn't to get your thoughts on paper. It's to get your subconscious and your heart on paper. If you write faster than you can think, um, sometimes you surprise yourself and go, whoa, I didn't realize that was in me or... You know, I didn't realize I felt that way. Um, and that's a really interesting therapeutic process. I, um, if I was to do it in retrospect, I, yeah, I think it's it's really good when you're dealing with really um, intense, heavy abuse and stuff to have a therapist to then bounce it off of it. The writing hurries therapy along because it brings up so much stuff. But, in a class setting, um, if it's really intense stuff like that, you, you want to be, it's fragile.
0: Yeah, and they're vulnerable. So and I was glad I had me, the training. Yeah, it I would seem to me you would need that, but also it's, that you would also want to have follow-up with counselors or, or social worker or whomever because, you know, that could, I mean, this is for them maybe just the beginning when they were mm-hmm. able to, ever acknowledge those feelings is what you're saying. One of the things that you say is that, uh, and I wonder why unused creativity can be harmful and how to express it constructively.
1: Oh, yeah. I always say if your imagination doesn't use you, I mean, do, if you don't use your imagination, it will use you. And that is in the form of obsession or dark thoughts or if, if you're, most people are creative by nature. And, uh, one of the delights of using these exercises is that literary talent is actually quite common. And so often people are surprised uh, and their creativity is awakened. And that's an exciting process. I always um, tell my students to do something in a the, in the creative realm every day for 10 minutes. It really enriches your life. Um, And uh, I have a lot of, like, lawyers that take my course and people that haven't, that have written all their life but haven't done it creatively. And it really um, is exciting for them to experience that, that delight in surprising themselves. Uh
0: And we're talking with the prisoners, with the teenagers who suffered abuse, we're talking about trauma. So I'm assuming that, and you mentioned the the lawyers or anybody who takes your course, I guess if you were able, it's sometimes easier to express trauma in writing rather than maybe verbally or at least in helping to acknowledge that whatever it was happened to you and that that can improve your mental health.
1: I think so. I think you get to deeper places by writing. I think because when you're talking, you're thinking. And uh, I think sometimes you really do excavate a little uh, deeper by writing. Um, it's also private, so you don't have to be in confession. You can do it and then decide later if you want to burn it or share it or tear it up, in the case of the prisoners, or share it. Um,
0: you can also so, write it and stop in the middle and put it down and come back to it, which is different yeah. than if you're, yeah.
1: And you can process your emotions that way. It's, um, it's also a therapist that's always there. Once you learn to do that, you can do that for the rest of your life. And when you need to work through a problem or you have something you're stuck with, uh, you have, you can write about it. You can write letters to yourself from your older self to your younger self. You can write letters to your lost loved ones. You can write lists of, of things you love, things that you like about yourself, things that, um, the, your senses, things that you, smells you like, tastes you like, feelings you like. These kind of things make you more mindful in everyday life. And... Um, it's just it's a it's a delightful process. It's just I've always journaled. It was is my love of journaling is what I guess brought me to do this, and I believe that art saved my life. When I was a child, the first acting job I was cast in was a role called the Brat in a, a, a TV series, and I um, I was. In my home, you didn't express anger. I would get hit if I expressed anger in my house. It just wasn't allowed. And I got to kick people in this series. They had shin pads on. And so I discovered that I could express my anger through art. And that saved me in a lot of ways from a a difficult childhood that I had that outlet. And I also wrote in my journal all my life. And I think that that did me as much good as therapy. Um,
0: well, you talk about that, you you, your own trauma, your own loss. Um, you, you said that artistic expression has sustained you through that. Uh, it, I mean, you mentioned that you got hit if you expressed any kind of anger. Were there any other real, tra- any traumatic events or other, gr- you know, losses in your life that this, that, being able to express yourself to write really helped you through it and made oh, you I'm more I'm a box mindful. of trauma. <laughs> oh, I'm no. a
1: box full of trauma in my life. I I've been I've had everything <laughs> happen. Um, I was kidnapped in Mexico. I have had sexual abuse in my history. Um, my my only sibling died a sudden death when she was 35, and uh, I had a very traumatic divorce and. I've written through it all.
0: Well, those are those are huge losses and huge traumas. Um, so tell us how that helped. I mean, you said, well, how about starting with the first example you gave? Like you got kidnapped in Mexico. What happened?
1: Um, I, I was picked up by some people that pretended to be police, and they threatened to... Uh, Torture me and stuff, and said I had to sleep with them, and they held me for twenty four hours till I gave them everything I had and then they let me go and said they'd be coming back for more um, and so I left town. I was told to leave town by a lawyer and uh, uh in mexico it's a it was a fine line this is a long time ago, but it was a fine line. you didn't know who was police and who were the the bad guys they were you know. They could be interchangeable, and uh, so I never did know exactly what that was all about. But uh, it was pretty scary, and um, yeah, I just I I used things in my fiction. I I eventually, after writing in journals for decades, I started writing fiction, and uh, but a lot of my fiction does have some elements of my life in it. Of course, at least. it's, I, I call it, it's truth if not factual. So um, I had to, actually I wrote a novel about my experiences in Mexico and I left out the kidnapping because it was just too unreal and too disturbing um, to, for the lightness of the book. So I made it lighter, my experiences in Mexico, than they were. I left show but, business and joined a circus. That's how crazy I was when I was yeah. younger. <laughs>
0: You had your crazy days, um, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, uh, that's terrifying. Actually, I mean the story you just described, uh, and um, so let's go on to next. You you mentioned a couple other very traumatic experiences, losing your sister sister at age thirty five, um, yes. just suddenly. Yeah, I mean those are the kinds of things. Unfortunately, probably many of us have experienced those similar that similar kind of trauma, uh, losing a loved one who dies suddenly. Um, and so you're saying that this process of writing for recovery is really helpful when, when that happens?
1: Oh yes, definitely. I don't know what I'd do without my, my journal. Um, and I was able to write a, uh, a memorial for her a day after she died. I don't know how I did that. Uh, but I guess it's just being used to writing.
0: Yeah, well, that's your skill. That's your pro- that's what would seem your profession. But who you are too, it would seem to me that would be a kind of a spontaneous thing. Uh, if you were a orator, you'd get up and give a great speech, maybe or. Um,
1: it's my go-to is writing about it. It's definitely my go-to, and sometimes I cry when I write. Sometimes I laugh. Um, Sometimes it's uplifting. I try to... Nowadays, I concentrate... I want to say one very important thing about writing about trauma, and that is I think it's important not to do it repeatedly, to do it once or twice, share it or get rid of it, feel like you've processed it as much as you can, and move on to things that lighten you and create more mindfulness and more spirituality and lighten your mood. Because if you dwell on the trauma too long, it tends to embed it in you even worse. So repetitive writing about trauma, I don't think is that healthy.
0: I think it's good to get it out.
1: Do you mean
0: repetitive writing about the same trauma or like a series of traumas? So you could write about each one separately, but don't keep writing about the same one all the time. Is that what you're saying?
1: Exactly. Get it down in detail, as much detail as you can, and then try to let it go.
0: Do you have to share um, it with someone or not? Is it more helpful to share if you trust someone, or does yes. it not make a difference? Yes.
1: It is. It is. But you can also do a ritual where you, you know, I like for adults burning it. If you have a fireplace or someplace safe, uh, but some kind of ritual getting rid of it. Um, if you if you really don't want to share it with somebody. But it's ideal to share it with with somebody. And as I say, if you are in therapy, it really quickens therapy along because you get to things it might take you a year to tell.
0: Uh yeah, that's true. I think that
1: you come out of denial. That would be that. very
0: helpful. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you get people? Uh, you're a writer, and you're also have this uh, the background in psychology. So how do you get people that you're working with to to do this? Um, you know, because people resist. I think I don't want to put it in writing. I don't want to you know, especially people who are in denial who, who uh, you know have refused to maybe take a look at what's happened to them because it's just they feel like it's too painful. How do you get them to do that to 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 be able to sit down and and tell their story?
1: Well, I sneak up on it a bit. I do free association exercises, and I do exercises where uh, I uh, tell people to write about their wiser self, to write letters from their self from the future to their self now. Um, And I just give them different kind of creative writing exercises. Uh, Sometimes I'll have them write from art, which evokes stories. And eventually your stories come out um, when you're doing these exercises. Usually you don't have to just say, write about the trauma. And when you do say, write about the trauma, I make sure that you use all your senses when you're remembering it. Um, It's very important for it to be vivid and... uh, Kind of relived. That's why I think when it's it's especially when it's new trauma, you do need support. If you know if something's happened this year,
0: well, um, I'm thinking about some. You do
1: need individuals about the, about
0: the me. Meet- I'm thinking about the Me Too's. Uh, you know, all that's coming out with all the women who have been abused and who have never told their stories um, and are beginning to do that. It would seem to me that this would be a great. A vehicle for those kinds of stories as well for the definitely sexual abuse or yeah harassment and, and all of that um,
1: there's a, there's an exercise in my book that's really optional that uh, I don't recommend for everybody I, I was given it in my psychology program and I couldn't hardly do it but it's it's I did it of the good things and that is a history of your sex life. Uh, it's interesting to see <laughs> where you've gone with that and how you've changed in your viewpoints and stuff towards sex and how you feel about
0: it. Um, it's interesting you should say that, Diane, because I've had that conversation now in the past few weeks with most of the women, with many women that I know, friends and colleagues. Like what it, in talking about, like, you know, you have a whole history of of your uh, of your sexual history and and. It's amazing. I'm beginning to hear. I mean, a lot of stories from a lot of women that I've known for a long time that I had no idea.
1: Yeah, I think uh, I, it's a huge percentage of us have been suffered some
0: kind of harassment. And uh,
1: being in show business as a young teenager wasn't great.
0: No, oh, did you know Harvey Weinstein?
1: No, but I knew others similar. Pardon?
0: Similar types of of yes. uh, characters. Yes. Yeah,
1: uh, horrible things. One big director showed me kitty porn. It was I'm, I've been haunted by it all my life, and I've I've written to him and actually sent it because the other uh, abusers perpetrators died before I ever did anything about it. So I've actually confronted this guy.
0: And what's his response, or as he responded?
1: Oh, it's first response, I sent him a second letter because I was so irritated by his first response after mulling on it for several months was well, I don't remember that I was that's why I quit drinking, I'm an old man, so it really wasn't um, uh, remorse he was a very powerful man in Hollywood, but I haven't heard other people come out, so I can't really come out you know, I can't you're kind of stuck legally unless you want to pay legal bills for possible slander suits because uh, if you come out and nobody else does, he could say you're lying and you have no proof.
0: Yeah, well, that's that he said, she said, I guess. I mean, yeah, which, as you say, then you have to get into legal battles and you can bankrupt yourself. Um, yeah, yeah.
1: So it's kind of I really admire the women who have come out, especially the ones who initiate and then got everybody follows. That's amazing.
0: Yeah, I think that will precipitate a lot of, of change, and I think it's it's obviously really positive change. Um, only a couple minutes left, so um, just and one you, I know that one of the other things that you do is you teach. Uh, therapists to use writing in their practices. I kind of touched on that, but do you actually have classes for that so that you te- teach social workers or psychologists to, to use this form of uh, creative writing for their clients or their patients? No, I do
1: one-on-ones. Um, and what I do is take them through the process so they experience it. Some Actually, sometimes I've gone into treatment centers and uh, counseling centers and taught, you know, given... Uh, presentations for a whole group of 120 interns, um, things like that. But I like working one-on-one and doing what I would do with an individual client, taking them through the exercises. I gear each exercise on the one before, how the person has responded to the one before, and then I design the next one in the session so that we're working on whatever problem or whatever issues they're dealing with and so the therapist gets to experience that and can use those techniques on their clients with their clients
0: well uh we want to buy we want to recommend the book right for recovery exercises for heart mind and spirit uh you can buy the book online bookstores everywhere
1: it's available for pre-order on Barnes and Noble and I think on Amazon it's it's due out January 16th
0: oh all right so we're we're early. We're That's early,
1: good. but you can go to my yeah. website, writeforrecovery.com, and find out a lot of information.
0: Yeah, about the book and also about you and what you're doing. I assume. Yes. Great. Well, we'll be looking. Write for recovery exercises for heart, mind, and spirit. And we've been talking to Diane and Sherry Case. She's the author. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It was great having you.
1: Thank you, Catherine. I have a good day.
0: Have Thank a good you. holiday. Yes, you too. Okay. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
2: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.